Author Gordon McDonald said this, the world can do almost anything as well as or better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There's only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer. I'm going to finish that thought with a story. Uh, During a British conference on comparative religions, expert scholars, theologians, pastor types from around the world got together to discuss whether any one belief was unique to the Christian faith. All right, so they started theorizing and postulating, right? Well, what about worldwide charities and missions and these sorts of things that have impacts on society? <laughs> this sort of thing. By the way, I imagine when scholarly pastoral types get together, they speak like a mix between that old guy from Masterpiece Theater and a British chimney sweep. All right, so that's what I'm doing here. Um, all right, uh, <laughs> it's ridiculous. So... So they went on to debate, right? Yes, well, this sort of thing. And until Clive Staples Lewis uh, walked into the room, C.S. Lewis, of course it was C.S. Lewis. This guy, it's like God got him on the bat phone, right? And he put on his theological cape and walked in the room and, I'm here, right? So he walks in the room and he just asks questions, you know, what's the rumpus about? He heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution to the world's religions. So in a very forthright manner, which was typical of Lewis, he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And there, the matter was resolved. Christianity can offer peace But then again, so can Buddhism. Christianity can offer a life of self-discipline. Then again, so can Islam. Christianity can promote charity, good works, love. So can Hinduism. Christianity can offer good family values. So can the Mormon church. All these religions that I just mentioned other than Christianity, to some degree though, require a form of self-salvation through merit to gain afterlife. Buddhism, you have the eightfold path of enlightenment. Islam, you have good and bad works that will be weighed on scales of justice at the end of time. Hinduism, built on good karma. Mormonism, you're resurrected by grace, but you become a god by good works. But not with Christianity. Christianity offers something holy and radically unique in grace. A free gift. But even if you're not religious, even if those things and world religions don't matter to you, As Gordon MacDonald noted, the world can do anything well. It can provide us with almost anything, right? You can find virtually 
anything outside of the church. People now can look for meaningful community in a college fraternity or in a street gang. Right? I'm fascinated watching these specials. I like to watch little things or read things on, on gangs and how so many people get into gangs because they just want community. Right? There's so many things that offer what Christianity offers, the little parts of it, the community, the experience of feeling good, having peace with oneself. But none of these places are people finding true grace. So as you can imagine, our big word for living this morning, we're continuing our series, Big Words for Living. Ten words from the book of Romans. And our big word for living this morning is grace. Love this word. And it's what makes Christianity unique. So I also want to pray it is what will make your life unique. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, do pray that this morning. For those who don't know grace, who have seen it as this out there, Pollyanna, weird Christian thing. God, I pray they would see the uniqueness of it this morning and why it matters. God, for those of us who've heard about grace before, may it amaze us anew this morning. We ask this all through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans, book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 12. If you want to use one of the Bibles we have prepared for you, that is page 807. 807. We're going to dig into Romans 5 here and see how it matters for living. But first, we want to define grace. I love this word. I'm probably going to talk about it two weeks in a row. Warning on that. But... Some of you may have heard grace defined as getting what you don't deserve. Everyone heard that before? Getting what you don't deserve, grace. Raise your hand. You hear that before? Okay. I'll even take some of the half raises or the hip raise. I just saw. All right. You've heard this before. Getting what you don't deserve is usually contrasted to mercy, which is not getting what you do deserve, which is uh, eternal damnation as a result of our sin and life of rebellion. And God shows us mercy, and we don't get what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Now, this definition serves the purpose, certainly of being uh, simple, easy to remember. But I don't think it gets to the heart, the real biblical heart of grace, at least as fully as I think it should. Spending years um, studying, meditating, praying about, talking with others on this word grace. I love it. Crafted this following definition. I think it's to the core of grace. Grace is God's love made active through an undeserved gift. God's love made active through an undeserved gift. The ultimate gift that God gave us is the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, which we did not deserve. But grace starts with God's passionate love for his people and his desire to actively demonstrate that love to us. Right? Beginning with creating us. 
right? And moving through sending His Son to save us all the way to the food we eat, right? To the clothes on our backs, to the gas we buy. It's all grace, right? And oh, oh gas, gas, what a precious gift, <laughs> right? All of these things are a gift of grace and it's so all-encompassing we see in Scripture. Grace can strengthen us. It can sanctify us, make us more like Jesus. It, it's used as spiritual gifts to give us to serve one another. There's so many ways that grace is used by God. But the key idea is He loves us with more than words, with action. That's why I love one of my favorite verses, 1 John 4, 9. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. That's how He showed His love among us. Showing His love is grace. And it differentiates it from just being love, right? Love is a quality God has. It's part of who He is. It's, it's the defining quality of God. But when he shows that love, ah, it's grace. So we might focus on, on different expressions of grace at some point and why that matters for how we live. This morning we're going to focus on the ultimate expression of grace. God's gift of salvation. So we're going to read together. Romans, here we go. Romans 5, starting with verse 12, and we'll go through verse 21. Paul says to the church in Rome, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. I want to stop here. These verses are actually a great review of what we've covered thus far, right? We've covered the hard stuff first few weeks of this, this uh, series. The law that God gives, God's holy law, reveals sin. We learn that we cannot follow God's law. And the reason is that we have this disease in our hearts called sin that makes us tend towards rebelling against God, pushing against Him. Right? And that's why we see here, before the law was in the world, sin did exist. But the law shows us, oh, that's sin. Ah, I see it now. And man, I want to keep sinning. <laughs> I want to keep going against that law. The result of this rebellion is first a just judgment that God decrees, and then a just punishment called wrath. Looked at last week. Which takes place fully in death for those who haven't trusted Jesus and this gift he has to offer. Let's keep reading. Alright. Brief digression. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more hath the grace of God and the th free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, 
but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is God's word. Now, a lot of words there, right? A lot of words seems very important. We all might hear these words and kind of nod our heads. Yes, righteousness, Adam, trespass, hmm, right? But it can be kind of confusing. It's a lot, it's very thick in here. What I'm hoping, though, is if you read this, that at least one phrase stands out, that, that you hear the climax, the kind of crescendo, right? The high point of this passage. Do you see it? It's verse 20, right? Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's a radical statement. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And this is all delivered through Jesus. Before we go any further, I want to take a step back and just consider what's Paul doing here in these verses? What's Paul doing here? Paul recognizes that in trying to get across this remarkable, glorious reality of grace that his audience might conclude, man, this, this is too good to be true. Right? Some things are too good to be true or seem too good to be true and this is one of them. This week, uh, I received an email. Um, it's one I, I often receive. The kind of email I often receive gives you a little window into my life as a pastor. It was from someone who used to attend SCC but now lives off-island. And they wanted some advice about a book. And uh, so they, they sent it to me. I, I, I looked up some information um, about the book. And this book promised some pretty big things. All right? And it kind of mixed in, kind of semi-credit to God, but not really. And things that were kind of from God, but not through Scripture. And, but there were big things, right? And so it kind of set off my pastoral yellow red flags in my head, my mind. And so I typed back this reply, and I was, right? In the middle of the reply, I started typing out. I just kind of go with the theory of these sorts of things. If, if it seems too good to be true, you know, it probably is. I didn't send the email, actually. I, I saved as a draft. Why? I was typing on my iPhone while I had my car mechanic. It was a terrible place to write a response to this anyway. I'm really good with my iPhone. I was like really good at typing. So anyway, I just saved it as a draft to finish later. And then I read verse 20. And I thought about grace. 
hopped on my computer, right? Opened the draft. Backspace, backspace, backspace. If it seems too good to be true, and it's not in the Bible, then it probably is. Right? Because the Bible contains some pretty unbelievable, unreal, remarkable promises, the greatest of which is grace. And Paul recognizes this about grace. He recognizes what he, what he wants to say in verse 20. He recognizes, oh my goodness. Because most receiving this letter would have been former Jews or at least those familiar with the Hebrew faith. Okay? And their ancestors believed, but the Jews at this time especially believed that the best way to fight, fight sin, fight dirty old sin, was with the law. That's how you fought sin, was with the law. Torah. In fact, the, the Mishnah, which was like a companion guide to the Bible, you know, or a companion guide in this case to the law in the Old Testament for Jews, even says, the more law, the more life. The more you stuff law into situations and problems, the more life that will come out of it. So, for Paul to say, the law, the law came in to increase the most offensive, reprehensible thing in God's sight. For him to say that the law increased sin. And in turn, where the most reprehensible thing in God's sight increased, God's forgiveness increased all the more. For him to say this to people, I mean, right? Well, Paul, you have a lot of explaining to do, right? And so that's what Paul does. That's what Paul is doing here in the middle of this passage. He's giving evidence for this remarkable, almost unbelievable truth of grace. So I want to step back and just make sure we see what Paul is doing here. And he's saying, hey, let's go back now. Let's go back and look at the first law and the first sin. Right? And in doing so, we'll find the first man and the leader of the human race. So Paul makes a bunch of these comparisons in verses 15 through 19. He compares the person of Adam with the person of Jesus. He compares the defining actions of this one man, Adam, with the defining actions of Jesus Christ. First, let's look at the person of Adam. Adam is the leader of the human race. Right? He's the first. First man. In fact, his very name, right, means man. And as such, he is what we call a type of Christ. And Paul says as much here, right? Paul saying that the sins of others who sinned after Adam was not like, in verse 14, the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Talking about Jesus, right? Adam, the leader of the human race. Adam was put in charge of naming God's creation. We see in Genesis 2. God entrusted Adam the responsibility of taking care of his garden, right? 
It's to Adam that God addresses the first law. Right? His command to eat, but not to eat, of this one tree over here. Which means, Adam then, as leader, has the responsibility to communicate even God's word to his wife. Right? After she's created, and then he has to communicate this to her. Which is a fascinating, and actually, as a side note, and telling parallel to a husband's leadership of his family as described in Ephesians 5. One of the ways a husband is to lovingly and sacrificially lead his wife is by encouraging her and washing her, it says, with God's word. Right? And then we see this pattern continued. We're told in First and Second Timothy and Titus that the leaders of God's family, called elders, are primarily responsible for leading with what? They lead with God's word. Alright, you see this? Pattern throughout from creation onwards. But back to Adam here. Even though it's his wife who first took and ate the forbidden fruit, Adam is leader. Adam is the leader, is the one God calls out, right? In the garden. Genesis 3. Where are you, Adam? I'm looking for you. It's kind of funny. It's kind of a funny moment. Like God's asking, where are you, Adam? He knows, right? Obviously, he's God. But uh, he just, you know, put a little fear in Adam. And it's Adam through whom the disease of sin is passed down to all humanity, as we find out here in Romans 5, right? So Adam, this is important for understanding what Paul's doing here. Adam is the leader and the prototype for all of humanity as it says in verse 15, many died through his trespasses. Paul's essentially saying, when it comes to Jesus, I'm going to show you how Jesus is the second Adam who reverses the cycle of broken humanity. Think about it. All your life, you've had one example. Adam. One defining lifestyle, sin, and one destiny, death. Jesus has come to reverse each of these, and he offers it freely. Note the contrast, verse 17 through 19. Just look at that with me, if you would, briefly. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Then he goes to another contrast again. He's hammering this point home. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for every man, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. He keeps going, though, with this hammering home. This contrast here. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus. Righteousness. Life. Right? Jesus, who fully obeyed where Adam didn't and where we couldn't, is the leader of the new humanity. Freely gives us a new lifestyle filled with righteousness and offers a new destiny. Life. 
the first stuff came from man. But this new stuff, Paul's saying, comes from God. So how much more will grace triumph? Still too good to be true? Not if we listen to God's word. Not if we compare each of our own histories with the history that Paul describes here of the human race in just 10 verses. Right? Remarkably similar. Similar. Even the way that Adam responds to sin, right? Blame, shame, we see in Genesis 3. All these different ways, so similar to our histories. Jesus comes in to offer this new gift and reverse the cycle of broken humanity. But this is one of the great realities, by the way, of Scripture. It doesn't just tell you what to believe. It gives us a reason to believe. Right? I love, I love this about God's Word. Right? Remember that, that you know, the, the children's song, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it also gives us reasons to believe that it is in fact so. Right? It's kind of like, that's my version of that song, alright? It's the, it's, the it's the hidden verses that were lost. Alright? Not just, we don't want God loves us just because the Bible tells us so, but then it goes on to give us reasons why God loves us. Credible, rational, glorious reasons. Love this about Scripture. That's what Paul's doing here. Do you see it? This whole thing about grace, it might seem too good to be true, but think about it. Your life has looked exactly like Adam's. Jesus' life is exactly the reverse. I'm showing you in history that there is reason to believe in this glorious reality of grace. Do you see it? Do we see it? How does this matter? How does saving grace matter for living? <laughs> it changes everything. People talk about things like once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. Or, as I've heard before when buying a vehicle, you'll never get a better deal. This is it. You'll never get a better, more scandalous offer which feels like the world's biggest ripoff, but delights both parties. It's like going to sign the lease of a one-bedroom flat to find you're signing the receiving end of a deed for ownership for a South Sound oceanfront home that is rumored to have a helicopter pad. All right? Does the owner of that home go to our church, by the way? Anyone? Just one. Just just curious. All right, not here today. <laughs> I just thought I'd try. It's attending a mandatory meeting begrudgingly where you find the new, that you are the new CEO and the old boss is popping the champagne for you. It's discovering you're the sole beneficiary in the will of a former arch enemy. It's Amazing, yet 
surprising at the same time and fills us with awe. And all we're due, all we're asked to do is to believe it and receive it. Uh, any French people here today? Anyone here from France? Good, I can tell the story. France, France represents sort of the epitome of post-Christian Europe, what we call post-Christian Europe, which is France is a highly agnostic and atheistic country. If you've been to France and you've been around there very much, you know this. Yet still, when Good Friday and Easter approach in the city of Paris, you'll see buses and billboards printed with the following words. La amour de Dieu est folie. La amour de Dieu est folie. The love of God is folly. The love of God is folly. Even an agnostic atheistic nation, you recognize the love of God is wild, extravagant, undignified even. That is grace. I can still remember when I first believed and received what seemed to be too good to be true. This marvelous gift of salvation. For me, the gift was first demonstrated, as is maybe the case for many of us, through other people. Right? They simply lived and loved as if their life was radically changed by this remarkable gift. And I remember I was supposed to be I was supposed to be at some other place and scheduled to be somewhere else, but there I was at this old picnic overlooking the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, in the United States, and just weeping. Sweeping. And I wept because I realized all my life I lived in a world where you could bring something to the table. You would, in fact, have to bring something to the table to expect the world to love you back. With Jesus, all I could bring to the table was sin. Heinous, grotesque, rebellious was the only thing an enemy can give. But in return, he brought forgiveness, life, freedom, adoption, eternity. Too good to be true. The evidence is all here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, just overwhelmed with thanksgiving to think that when someone like myself can only bring to the table an enemy's curse, an enemy's deed, that you would bring this Remarkable, all-encompassing, all-forgiving, all-life-giving gift of salvation, grace. 
But Lord, you showed us that it's real. That all of humanity, beginning with the first man, says no to you and tries to cover up that with shame and with blaming others and circumstances, Lord. Our history is the history of Adam. But Jesus is the second Adam, giving a new humanity, changed lives, a changed lifestyle, a new destiny, all freely given by grace. Lord, if we're not in amazement by this, I pray that we would be. I pray that day would not go by, that we wouldn't be haunted by this amazing and scandalous offer. Lord, not only for those who haven't yet received it and believed it, but for those of us who have, but have put it to the side, Lord, who've stopped considering it, who've stopped living by it, who've stopped meditating on it and considering it, I pray that we would once more and that we would respond in thanksgiving. Why are Christians really so different, Lord? It's absolutely and totally because of grace. We thank you for it. And we want to worship you for it. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.